Good morning, Soul Sanctuary. My name's Mike. I'm the discipleship director here. And I'm, I'm a teacher by, by training. And I, I've been learning and growing in my, in my love and appreciation for the Bible. So I, I feel deeply, deeply privileged and honored to teach this morning. Um, as, I, as I was preparing last week for this morning, I had frequent, like frequent, almost everyday realizations um, as to how big a deal this is. Like, uh, it's, it's a privilege to teach scripture, but, it, but it's also a responsibility. Like, who, who really cares if I mess up a little bit of teaching high schoolers some Canadian history? Like, this is, this is the Bible. So, ne- needless to say, uh, I'm honored, but I'm also quite nervous. So, so bear with me if, if I lose my spot and I begin to hyperventilate or I drop into a panic-induced coma or something, but uh, I, I appreciate it. This morning, we're continuing in our series, Minor But Mighty, where we're doing a deep dive into each of the minor prophets in the Bible. Like Pastor Jerry has, has shared before, these prophets aren't called minor because they're less important, but rather because of their length. They're, they're quite short. And today, we'll be looking at Obadiah, which is, which is actually the shortest book in, in all the Old Testament. And in order to teach through this book well, we're going to look at five questions. So, one, who wrote the book? Two, where are we historically? Three, what's the main message? Four, why is this book so important? And five, how are we to apply this to our lives today? So with that, let's, let's dive into the first question. Who wrote this particular book? As we see in actually most prophetic books of the Bible, it's, it's common at the beginning that the prophet is identified by a note of the period in which they prophesied, uh, their hometown, or at least the region where the prophecies uh, took place, and their father, or, or any combination of these. And there are only two prophets where none of this information is really given, uh, with even their names coming into, into question. And one of these prophets is, is Obadiah. His, his name, the, the word Obadiah, the name Obadiah means servant or worshiper of God. And so this, this could have just been the word that's describing this person's role. It, it might not have been his name. Um, however, Obadiah was also a fairly common uh, Israelite name, so it's, it's actually safe to assume that, that Obadiah was this person's uh, name. Other than that, though, the prophet behind this book is a bit of a mystery, uh, as we really don't know anything or much about him, especially when compared with, uh, with the other prophets of, of the Old Testament. Where we are historically, our, our second question, is also debated. So because the beginning doesn't mention a time period like other prophets, we have to look at the clues within the writing itself. And since the prophecy in Obadiah concerns Edom, and especially its treachery during an attack of some kind on Jerusalem, and, and we see that in verses 10 to 14, and, and we'll take a look at that later, um, but this can, can, can start pointing us in the right historical direction. The kingdom of Eden, Edom, no, not Eden, kingdom of Edom, 
um, was the southeastern neighbor and, and a regular enemy of the nation of Israel. Again, we'll, we'll look at why also a bit later. And many of the recorded instances of fighting uh, between the two nations in Scripture either concludes with Israel's victory or minor concessions for a triumphant Edom in the taking over of small border towns. So neither of these actually fit the treachery being described in verses 10 to 14. The most likely period for the book of Obadiah is shortly after the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 587 BCE. And we see the retelling of this event in 2 Kings 25. Although Edom wasn't explicitly linked to Jerusalem's downfall here, their satisfaction at the outcome of Israel's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians would have matched that of other nations who had opposed Judah in the past. Now that we kind of know, we kind of know who Obadiah is and, and when this is taking place, let's dive into the book itself. Um, we're, we're actually really, really privileged this morning because it, Obadiah, because it's the shortest book in the Bible at a mere 21 verses, we're actually going to read the whole thing. And, and that's really going to help because we're going to be able to start with the entire story uh, in mind before we dive into specifics. So feel free to, to follow along in your Bibles um, or sit back, uh, relax, close your eyes maybe, and, and just picture the story that's, that's unfolding if, if that's beneficial for you. Um, water. So Obadiah, um, it's right after Amos and it's right before Jonah. Obadiah starting in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Zion, sorry, Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, 
On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So, at first glance, this book doesn't seem very promising. It just sounds like a bunch of divine judgment poems against Edom. However, there really is a lot going on here. And to, and to truly appreciate what's going on, we, we need to first look at some of the backstory. So the people of Edom are, are different than, than most of the other nations around Israel because they had a shared ancestry with Israel. They both belonged to the family of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25 uh, to chapter 27 really goes into detail about the tense relationship that these brothers have. Esau is described as this hairy, beast-like man who treats his own birthright as the firstborn son with disdain as he sells it to his brother Jacob to simply satisfy his immediate desire of hunger. Jacob, though, is, is no better. His very name means he cheats. And he's described as this smooth-skinned deceiver who manipulates his family to not only receive Esau's birthright, but also his blessing as he tricks his aging father Isaac into passing along God's covenant blessing to him. In this story, each brother eventually receives a different name. Esau is named Edom, and Jacob is named Israel. And it's these names which eventually became the names of the families and people group that descended from them. 
these families continually replayed the difficult relationship of their namesakes, and the nations of Israel and Edom themselves had enormous tensions throughout the centuries. So to really, to really see the depths of this tension, a great example is found in Numbers chapter 20. Israel is concluding their 40 years of wandering in the desert because of their own rebellion, and they're coming up to the kingdom of Edom. They're coming up to their borders. And so we'll actually, we'll pick up uh, at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, and we'll start in verse 14. It says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will, we will go up by the highway, and if, if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay you for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Uh, from, from what friends have told me about their own traveling in the Middle East, um, is that Middle Eastern hospitality is, is, is renowned. Like, they're incredibly hospitable people. Um, you know, you see people going out of their way to be welcoming and showing generosity, even to strangers. Um, so imagine what the generosity and hospitality and welcome is to, to family members. So when Moses sends his first messengers in verse 17, asking for safe passage through Edom's land, that they'll stick you know, to the main road, they won't take any food from a field or water from a well. The hope and expectation was that Edom would open their arms to them and, and, and welcome them as, as a brother. They'd say, no, no, come take, take water, eat freely as you travel through our land safely. But they don't do this. They say in verse 18 that if you come through, we'll attack you. Moses concedes this and sends another messenger saying, oh, okay, okay, let us, let us travel safely, and, and if we do take anything, we'll pay you for it. And again, Israel is met with force and told to take the long way. Edom will, will have nothing to do with them. Now, despite this first slight, Israel and Edom still shared this family bond of a shared heritage. However, 
this relationship continued to dissolve and this family bond between them was finally betrayed and shattered in Edom's reaction to the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. Not only did Edom just stand idly by while Babylon conquered Jerusalem, but they also saw this as their chance to kick Israel while they were down. They took this as an opportunity to attack and plunder other Israelite towns and even capture and kill Israelite refugees fleeing from from the massacre. Edom's violence is, is horrible. And in other prophetic books, God holds other nations accountable for this same kind of violence. And so, empowered by God, Obadiah does the same here against Edom. Understanding all of that, all of that backstory um, actually helps us answer our, our next question. The main message of this short book is that the Lord God's justice will be established. This is an incredibly powerful and, and a hopeful message that might be easier to see if we, if we break down this short book. So, Obadiah has, has two halves. The first half, verses 1 to 14, are a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom. And the reason is specified in verses 3 and 4. So verses 3 and 4 say, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Excuse me. Edom is being judged for their pride and their self-exaltation. Now, they, a, a lot of this is, is metaphoric and, and beautiful language, essentially describing their, like, lofty metaphorical state of being prideful, but they, they literally lived up high in the mountains as well. Their homes and fortresses were carved into the very rock itself. And this naturally well-defended position went to their heads as they believed they were untouchable and therefore superior to the Israelites. And now that we know that Edom and Israel um, are descended from brothers, it should actually jump off the page uh, that this even sounds like a big brother boasting over a little brother. However, this, this pride went much deeper than mere sibling rivalry. It says in Ezekiel 35.5 that Edom cherished, they cherished a constant hatred and hostility toward Israel. Um, maybe a good, a good example of that, of that cherishing of, of hatred. Do, do you ever replay an argument uh, or something in your head that, that's happened in the past? Um, I, I used to do that all the time, and, and I, I still catch myself uh, at times doing this. And, and then you come up, you know, with a better, a better comeback or something better to say, and, oh, if only I had thought of that in the moment, it would have been so good, I would have put them in their place or, or whatever. Um, and then maybe you, you know, later on after that, you start coming up with imaginary arguments 
with that person and go through the scenarios of how you would win those arguments. I mean, if not, all of you are realizing how terrible of a person I am. But this is a, it's a simple attitude and behavior that shows this cherishing of hostility towards someone else that, that we do ourselves in our own lives. Now imagine this kind of thinking, but more intensified, and over a lifetime, and over generations of lifetimes. To Edom, Israel was no longer a sibling, but rather a people who needed, and in their eyes deserved, to be destroyed. And it was this sense of hatred and superiority, all stemming from pride, that ultimately led the Edomites to not only stand by when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, but to actually participate in the violence. Again, brothers, brothers might fight. Brothers do fight. Big brothers might pick on and bully their little brothers. But normally, when we... When, when big brother sees someone else picking on little brother, you know, in, in true TV or movie fashion, big brother, you know, kicks in and says, hey, no one picks on my brother but me, and then comes to little brother's rescue. You know, though, that something is seriously wrong if that older brother just joins in on the violence. So God says, through Obadiah, that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As you have done to Israel, it will be done to you. Now, right where we expect to hear, you know, about how Edom will meet its doom, Obadiah suddenly, suddenly shifts in verse 15. Verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And so when we, when we see this, when we see this, it's, it's okay to pause and ask ourselves, why are we shifting from Edom to all the nations all of a sudden? This, this verse, verse 15, is acting like, like a hinge verse that, that links the first half of Obadiah with the second half of Obadiah. And it's in this second half, verses 16 to 21, where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord, a day of judgment and accountability, not only for Edom, but broadens his focus to include all nations. The prophet is saying that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way, falling from their heights into their own destruction and ruin. Now, when you combine these two sections, the one about Edom and the one about all nations, we actually see why Obadiah was so interested in the nation of Edom. He sees their pride and fall as an example as an image of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall as well. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the word Edom is spelled with the same letters as the Hebrew word for mankind or humanity, which is Adam or Adam. This most certainly isn't coincidental 
based on the nature of and shifts in focus that we see in Obadiah. Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose the pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord. However, as in, as in all of the prophets, God's judgment is never his final word. If we remember back to the conclusions of Joel and Amos from the last two weeks, Joel painted a picture of what will happen after the day of the Lord against all nations. In Joel chapter 2, God will perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who humble themselves and who call upon the Lord will be saved. And in Amos chapter 9, in its conclusion, after the day of the Lord had judged Israel's evil, God would raise up the house of David and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom and all the nations called by his name. The book of Obadiah has been placed right after these two prophets to expand on these very promises about the hope of God's kingdom over all the nations. And so, the book of Obadiah, despite its, its heavy emphasis on the judgment of Edom and all prideful and violent nations, concludes with, with actually a very hopeful uh, future in verses 17 to 21. As God announces that he's going to restore his kingdom over a new Jerusalem, that he'll repopulate it with a faithful remnant, and then from there, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territories and nations around Israel. So, why is Obadiah and his message so important? I, I'm, I'm sure, and in fact, I can probably guarantee you that there's, there's many reasons why, but, but I see two. The first is that this small book contributes to the larger portrait of God's justice and faithfulness, which we see uh, in most of the Old Testament and especially in the prophets. The pride and betrayal of the people of Edom is an example of the greater human condition. All of the ways that we betray and hurt each other and God's good world all stems from our own pride. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, one, one thing I've been, I've been learning when it comes to wanting to, to understand uh, the story of the Bible is that a lot of the time we need to go back to the beginning. And, and I don't think understanding what, what the Bible says about pride is any different because we, we actually see this anti-God state of mind in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to go all the way back to the front. Um, something like page two of your Bible. Yeah, page two of my Bible, anyway. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter three. 
Genesis chapter 3, right at the front of the Bible, and we're going to read verses 1 to 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they saw, sorry, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Like, what on earth is up with this talking snake? How is it talking? What is it? Where did it come from? And, and I have no idea. I, I have absolutely no clue. Um, and, and the biblical authors don't actually seem to, seem to care um, about that because they don't go into any detail uh, concerning those things. Regardless, whatever this creature of evil is, it sows the seed of pride into Adam and Eve's heart. And you can, almost, you can almost see or imagine the thought process going through Eve's mind as she entertains this creature's comments. Why, why wouldn't God um, want me to have this knowledge? I am made to be like him, right? If, if I do this, it'll make me wise. Isn't that what God wants? And on and on, I'm sure something like that would have, would have went until they took matters into their own hands, took the fruit, and ate it, seizing autonomy for themselves as they chose to believe that their way, that their way was good and right and more beneficial than God's way. And it's from here everything starts to unravel in the story. They see that they're naked and cover themselves from each other, Again, you can imagine the thoughts going through their minds. It's, it's not good to be exposed and vulnerable to my spouse. I, I need to hide myself. And like, this, goes, this does go far beyond than just a breakdown of a marriage, but, but relationship in general. How many of us have actively decided to not be vulnerable, to not share what's what's bothering us, to deal with an issue on our own and not open ourselves to our spouse or our friend, our parents, you name it. Pride tells us to hide ourselves. And we see this between Adam and Eve, and then we actually see it with God. The story continues with them hiding from God when they hear him in the garden. And when he calls to them and even gives them what looks like an opportunity to humble themselves and confess what they had done, they begin shifting blame. 
Adam says that it's Eve's fault, and Eve says it was the snake's fault. Um, a couple years, a couple years into, into mine and Chris's marriage, my wife, uh, a couple years into our marriage, um, we were driving and turning off of, of our street, like just started driving, turning off our street. And for whatever reason, uh, I didn't see a car coming and I, I almost hit them. Um, and, and after making sure that, that they were okay and, and apologizing, we started to drive away. And, and I remember turning to Krista and, and telling her, like almost, almost maliciously so, that I blamed her for that. You know, she, she had distracted me or, or whatever. My, my pride refused to let myself take ownership of that mistake. And like, th that's, that's a really petty example, but I think it also shows the everyday nature of pride. Stories like mine and, and the story of the garden shows that pride refuses to humble itself and accept the mistakes and damages that it causes. Moving forward from the story of the garden, we see the horrible train wreck of pride just continue on from here. It's pride that leads Cain to murder his brother Abel. It's pride that leads the people to build the Tower of Babel. It's pride that forces Hagar into Abraham's tent. It's pride that leads Jacob to manipulate and deceive his brother Esau and his father Isaac. It's pride that leads Joseph's brothers into selling him into slavery. It's pride that leads Pharaoh to believe that the oppression of a people group, the oppression of the Israelites, and the murder of their children is good and right. It's pride that leads Israel to abandon God and choose for themselves what is right. It's pride that leads Babylon to conquer nations, of which Israel is included. It's pride that leads Edom to sit back watching gleefully as it happens and even leads them to join in. It's pride in, in us that leads us to refuse help. It's pride in us that says my way is right and I'll get it regardless of who I hurt or have to go over. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind as we seek to exalt ourselves over others and over God himself. This is the human condition that prophets like Obadiah are pointing out. And as he contributes to the portrait of God's justice, he reminds his readers that no one person, that no one nation is too high to avoid being held accountable by God. However, Obadiah didn't stop here because he continues and builds on the portrait of God's loving faithfulness from Joel and Amos. And this leads us to the second reason why Obadiah is so important. Along with these other prophets, Obadiah points forward to a time when this pride would be confronted and dealt with finally. One of those times was the life and death of Jesus. Throughout Jesus's ministry, he confronts pride, whether that's the pride of the Pharisees in his regular interaction with them, or even the pride of his own disciples. Mark 9, uh, 33 to 35 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, 
was in the house, he asked them, his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus knew that his, that his followers, in their pride, were seeking positions and status in Jesus' coming kingdom. However, Jesus quickly reminds them that his kingdom isn't and wouldn't be built on high status and pride, but rather on humility and choosing to lower yourself to serve those around you. Because as Jesus says a chapter later in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself, God become human, chose to come in the power of humility, love, and sacrifice rather than the false power of pride. And we see this confrontation of pride reach a climax in the trial and death of Jesus. In Luke's account of this, he tells of Pilate, in an attempt to not have to come to a decision of crucifying Jesus, sends him to Herod. Essentially, he's saying, Jesus isn't my responsibility, he's Herod's. And so, we see Jesus before Herod, who historically himself and his father, Herod the Great, who was the guy who tried to kill Jesus as an infant, were of mixed Judean and Edomite heritage. Herod the Great, while in Edom, or Idumea to the Greeks and Romans, cultivated favor with Julius Caesar, the leader of Rome in his day, who installed them in their position as king of the Jews. So, in Jesus and Herod's meeting, we see, we see the story of Obadiah being played again. The nations, the prideful spirit of Babylon is at Jerusalem's gates once again manifested in the empire of Rome and the shadow of the cross looming over Jesus, the true and perfect embodiment of Israel. And rather than come to his aid, take responsibility for him, and save him from his coming execution, Herod and his men do what Edom did all that time ago. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, with hatred, and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And so, Jesus was crucified with Herod the Edomite standing idly by and even participating in his death. However, this wasn't the end. We know this. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. The power of the world in all its pride and violence was not enough to keep Jesus down. This way of life was shown to be a false way when compared to the humble, loving, sacrificial way of Jesus. And when we look to Jesus' resurrection and the future hope being called to attention at the end of Obadiah, 
we see that the day is coming when Jesus will come again and God will deal with all evil in our world as he brings his healing kingdom of peace over all the nations. There's, there's so much more going on here in Obadiah when viewed through the lens of the whole Bible. And, and I, guarantee, I guarantee you, I'm only scratching uh, at the surface. But in light of all of this, we come to our final question. How do we apply this to our lives? The book of, the book of Obadiah hopes to lead us to more than just simply saying pride comes before the fall. Not that it isn't true, because it's clear that it is, but if you're, if you're like me, the maybe three times I've, I've said that phrase, it's actually come from a place of pride. My own pride and ego can't handle someone else's pride and ego, so I give myself the satisfaction of commenting, even if it is only uh, to myself, well, pride comes before the fall, so they'll get theirs. Yes, Obadiah is pointing to the consequences of prideful actions and that there will come a day that all people and all nations who walk in this way will be held accountable. And, and we really are, we're, we're meant to hope in God's justice. However, this isn't about getting to wag a finger at the prideful in our own time. Rather, the Bible wants us to use Obadiah and the prophets like him as a mirror as we look at our own reflection. The answer to how we are to apply Obadiah to our lives is both incredibly simple yet incredibly difficult. We are to reflect on how it is we are going about our own lives. Are we walking in the pride of the world or in the humility and love of Jesus. This, this process isn't always easy. It's, it's not an easy process. As we're required to take a hard look at ourselves, when perhaps our default is taking a hard look at others. All of the Bible points to the reality that pride is and will be our own personal and corporate downfall if we don't choose another way. <clears throat> because, as we've seen in the Bible and our own lives, pride leads to all kinds of hurt, destruction, and even death. We are then invited to see in Jesus that there is a new way, a way that leads to life. But this way requires sacrifice, a sacrifice of self, as Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the way of the world, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. These verses remind us of the call of the Christian life to not walk in the way of the world, but rather to take continual steps with the Spirit in the way of Jesus. Wherever pride reigns in our lives, this way doesn't look right 
uh, or good or beneficial. Uh, in fact, it's costly to our pride and its way of living life. However, Jesus encourages everyone in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am humble. I'm not prideful. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is inviting us to learn from him and his teaching and way of life because it's his way that will ultimately transform us as we relinquish pride in every part of our lives and begin exuding the humility, sacrifice, and love of Jesus that leads to life, healing, and hope. Like I said before, this requires, it requires constant reflection in every area of life asking ourselves, where am I walking in pride? Fortunately, this is a process and is never expected to be tackled all at once. So maybe you know exactly where you've been walking in pride. Your first step is simply confessing that. Or maybe even a step before that is asking the Holy Spirit to help you see it as pride and something you need to turn from. However, pride also blinds us. So a lot of us probably don't even know where pride rules in our lives. Your place to start might be to simply invite the Holy Spirit to show you where your life is not lining up with the humility and love of Jesus. Or perhaps it's giving a close friend, a family member, or or a mentor the authority to call out areas of pride in your life that that you don't see, that you can't see. I I don't know where you need to start in this reflection process, but the important thing is to start. This, this Sunday actually marks the first day of, of what's called Holy Week, which is the final week of, of the season of Lent. And if you don't know, the season of Lent in the church calendar is meant to be a period of self-reflection as we remember Jesus and his own relinquishing of self as he moved toward the cross. And it's this, it's this time, it's, or sorry, it's this same intentional reflection Obadiah is calling us to do each day. To hold the mirror of Scripture to our own faces and ask the hard question of what in my life needs to go so that I can continue on this transforming process of becoming more like Jesus. And as we move from this, from this transforming process, sorry, move through this transforming process, we're called to hope then in the coming day where God will make all things right again by vanquishing evil and even the last vestiges of pride in ourselves. Father, we thank you and and praise you that we can once again come to your table. We thank you and continue to hope in the day where where you will make all things right again. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us to seek out pride in our lives. Reveal the broken way that it is and lead us in the way of Jesus as we learn to walk in his way of humility and love to bless all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. A blessing from Proverbs 3. 
Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week.